Good morning, everyone. Sorry for the bit of the delay while I get organized, but we're going to be in uh, Philippians chapter 1 again this morning. Uh, we're going to continue in the, uh, in the study. Um, two Sundays ago, Owen actually opened up this study with a uh, background and introduction into uh, Paul's letter to the uh, Philippians, the church, the church, uh, uh, the church in Philippi. So and then uh, Owen also took us through verses one through six. So we're going to pick up in verse seven this morning. But looking back, these verses are just full of Paul's love and his thanksgiving for this group of believers that are located in Philippi. And uh, the love that Paul shows, as Owen had discussed, is actually quite remarkable because um, this is a remarkable state of mind for someone who's been unjustly accused and imprisoned, which is where Paul is when he writes this letter. But we find as we continue in verses 7 through 11 this morning that Paul isn't filled with bitterness and he doesn't complain about his situation other than occasional mention of being imprisoned. If you didn't know that, you'd think he's in, a, uh, he's in a very favorable situation, but he's not. In the preceding messages from 1st, 1st John, 2nd John, and 3rd John, uh, we were humbled by the directness as John instructed us on how we should be living. And uh, I'm humbled again as we consider Paul's heart and concern for others while living in um, physical adversity. And others, others experienced this as well, but that was Paul's, a lot of Paul's life was filled with physical adversity, but yet he was always full of love. It's very humbling. And the question, and I think Owen might have addressed this as well, would we be able to do the same? Um, I found myself challenged by that question uh, as I thought about it, and I doubt I could really follow Paul's example in my own strength. Um, and so that's what this message is about, is we can't do things on our own strength. We have to do things through the Lord. So as we move into today's expository message, it's centered on a group of verses that are presented in context. We need to check, check it for errors that are going to be contributed by me. I'm a man, and uh, I'm not perfect by any means. And uh, it's actually an awesome responsibility to get up in front of a group of people and talk about the Word of the Lord. Uh, others that do that here feel that responsibility too, and I don't mean awesome in the cheap way that it's described in modern society, but awesome as in a, a heavy responsibility. It's a blessing, but it's also, also a heavy responsibility. We need to keep in mind those that, that lead others that, as uh, Jesus said, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for you to have a millstone put around your neck and be dropped in the ocean. And it's pretty, it's pretty heavy. We don't think about that sometimes. We think about that only as maybe applying to children, but I don't think that's what the Lord had in mind. So uh, I, feel that, I feel that responsibility as I'm here today, and all of us should when we do that. So as we systematically approach this group of verses we're going to look at this morning, um, we're not going to skip, skip any difficult verses, but I ask you to be a Berean, and uh, that's been referred to many times here in Acts 17, verses 10 through 11, 
which I'll read you. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. I'll read that again. Examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So the Bereans were commended for their habit of going back and fact-checking messages, going into the Word and making sure what they heard was correct. So I encourage us to do the same, not only this morning, but as we listen to messages, podcasts, we listen to things on the radios. Let's uh, ground ourselves as the Bereans did in the Word of God. So uh, now we're going to go into our, our passage in Philippians, and we're going to begin at verse 7, and we're going to go through verse 11 this morning. So let's read this together. Uh, please turn to Philippians 1, beginning at verse 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of my gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may overflow still more and more in real knowledge and discern, all discernment, so that you may discover the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Christ Jesus for the glory and praise of God. Let's go to the Lord and uh, one more time. Lord, we thank you for this time of worship we've had this morning, Lord, as we worshiped you in song. And as we look at this passage of Scripture, we continue to worship you, Lord, and we just ask you would uh, open our minds and help us to understand what it is you want us to learn, Lord. And I uh, just pray you'd use me as your instrument and just move me out of the way, Lord, and just uh, speak what you want brought forward today, and that on our parts, Lord, we would set this time aside and uh, would not be concerned with the cares and worries of the day, Lord, but we just worship you. And uh, Lord, we thank you for all these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So looking a little bit more in detail at Philippians 1, uh, verse 7, this is Paul's relationship with the Philippians. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. So in the verses that uh, preceded verse 7, Paul thanks God for the Philippian believers and remembers them joyfully in his prayers. and uh, he expands on that further as we look, look at this passage this morning. The beginning of verse 7 could read, just as it is right, um, when you uh, look at that Greek word. So it could read, just as it is right for me to feel this way about you all. So uh, how did Paul feel? These are Paul's spiritual children. And uh, the memories of them provide comfort to him as he's now imprisoned in Rome. He's under house arrest, but he is in prison, and he's quite some distance from them. But Paul considers them to be partners with him, both in prison and while preaching the gospel. And Paul did continue in service to Christ by meeting with visitors who came to see him while he was under house arrest or imprisoned, and also in writing powerful letters such as this one to the Philippians. 
uh, that went and they went to a, a number of dis- different churches. But we find this described in Acts 28. If you'll turn there with me, we're going to look at Acts 28, verse 23, and then we're going to uh, look at uh, verses 30 and 31 at the end of the passage. Acts 28, verse 23. <clears throat> so the context, Paul is in, uh, he's in Rome. He is under arrest, but uh, some commentators describe it as a house arrest. Uh, there seemed to be some liberty associated with it because he was able to uh, entertain visitors at the place he was at. Uh, so in the verses before this, we see where he's invited the Jews to come and meet with him. And so verse 23 uh, follows up on that. Acts 28:23. When they had set a day for Paul, people came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Uh, And then jumping down to verses 30 and 31 at the end of the chapter. Now Paul stayed two full years in his own rented lodging and welcomed all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching things about the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. So we see Paul being imprisoned was not the end of his ministry, was it? He didn't say, well, I'm all done. I've been, I've been arrested and uh, pulled out of circulation. But Paul just used it as a different platform for the furtherance of the gospel. And we've seen that other places where Paul adapts to whatever situation he's in. For instance, when he's in Athens and looking at all the, uh, uh, the altars to the false gods, he used that as a teaching moment. And so... Paul was, uh, Paul was remarkable. He didn't give up. He kept moving forward. And as we think about this further, Paul was, this imprisonment, uh, Scripture doesn't tell this, but historical accounts tell us that Paul was released after these two years of being in these rented quarters. And we see an allusion to this, his second arrest in 2 Timothy 4.13. We won't go there, but that's something you can look at. There's some discussion he asks for his parchments and uh, other things to be sent to him. There's, a, there's an indication that he'd left very quickly. And it's likely during the second arrest, we hear this, uh, Paul talks about being in chains. He was probably, uh, this is probably the time at which he was chained to these uh, praetorian guards, which are the, they're the elite guards of uh, Caesar's corps. And so when they guarded prisoners, they'd be chained to them 24-7. And so, uh, as, we've, as we've talked about before, I wonder how many of those guards, especially those that were chained to them, were converted under Paul's ministry. Because you can bet Paul was sharing the word of the Lord with them, even though he was a, he was a prisoner. But coming back to the, the Philippians and the end of this, uh, the end of verse 7, we see what a privileged bond Paul grants to the Philippians, then he says, you are all partakers of grace with me. And again, he just feels like he's part, he's with these people and they're they are part of his ministry. But Paul continues to express his feelings towards them in verse 8. So let's move to Philippians 1 verse 8. This is Paul longing for the Philippians. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
So we see Paul in this verse, he's speaking sincerely. He's actually taking an oath, isn't he? Because he says, for God is my witness. He, but he's expressing godly love. He says the affection of Christ Jesus, that's agape love, that type of sacrificial love where you're giving, you're giving without any expectation of anything in return. And he's showing that towards his spiritual children, which are these Philippian believers. And his longing is likely for their, not only their spiritual well-being, but for his desire to come back and spend time with them again. And I think others have described that as, a, as an analogy. We all have family members that we're separated from, and you might keep in touch by text, by phone, by email, but there's nothing like being with them face-to-face and having that fellowship, that time with them. And that's what, that's what Paul is longing for. He wants to have that fellowship with these believers. But his longing is uh, as the love of Christ is towards his bride, which is us. The church is the bride of Christ. And Paul has that longing as the affection of Christ Jesus does for us. Now let's move to verse 9 and look at Paul's further desires for his children. So we see in Philippians 1 verse 9, uh, Paul describes this as overflowing in love. And I pray that your love may overflow still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So again, Paul is praying for his spiritual children as he'd, as he'd uh, talked about earlier in this passage. And what he wants is that their agape-type love, again, that's that sacrificial love, God-type love, would overflow, not being, not being held in and checked, but just being given out, given out freely in the way that God's love flows over them and over us. So Poole's uh, commentary uh, talks, talks about this overflow of love, and this is not Scripture, so please keep this in mind. But uh, Poole describes this overflow of love as really being necessary, that your love may abound, viz. that their love both to God and man showed in their bounty to him might as a rising stream from its springing fountain yet flow out, further out, much more abundantly communicate itself in all Christian offices, and not abate, as it seems happened afterwards among the Ephesians. Yeah, Revelation 2.4 is a reference there, and I'll read that for you. At the passage, this passage where uh, Christ is addressing the seven churches, he talks to the church, church in Ephesus. At the end, in verse 4, he says, I have this against you that you have left your first love. So that's an idea. That's the opposite of overflowing of love. That's love that might have been flowing, but then there was a check and it was pulled, it was pulled back. But uh, this type of overflow of love isn't about good feelings, but it's about uh, instead obtaining godly knowledge, real knowledge, and insight. Um, we'll go to commentary again here. This is Ellicott's commentary. And again, this is not scripture, so let's take this with caution. But Ellicott describes a general pattern in Paul's letters which is seen here also. If we study carefully the opening thanksgivings and prayers of Paul's epistles, we may note that he always thanks God for what is strong in the church to which he writes and prays God for the supply of that in which it is weak. Here he thanks God for the characteristic enthusiasm and large-heartedness of the Philippians. He prays for their advance in knowledge, perception, judgment, 
the more intellectual and thoughtful side of the Christian character in which they and perhaps the Macedonian churches generally were less conspicuous. So it was an interesting insight that Ellicott had here. I hadn't thought about this before because many times you look into these letters, letters of Paul and he has a purpose when he's there. I mean, these verses at the beginning where he's, he's opening and he's praying and he's expressing gratitude aren't just filler, are they? But Paul has a purpose in this. There's a purpose of this being in Scripture. And I hadn't thought about that as he's, he's using this method of pointing out this is an area you're strong in. We're thankful for that. This is an area where you need to, you need to work or you need to grow. Let's move into uh, verse 10 now in Philippians. So that you may discover the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ. That might read a little differently than the translations that uh, others of you are using. And uh, I actually had a a footnote there that said uh, the NASB starts out that you may discover the things that are excellent. They had a footnote that says, or may, or approve the things that matter. So that got me started, and I, I dug into this a little more, looking at other translations, and then going back and looking at the Greek word. And uh, being as uh, Nick likes to be called on on short notice to provide graphics and stuff, I sent him a text and email <laughs> uh, last night and asked, Nick, could you pull this together for us? And he has. Thank you. So here we see the, uh, the four different versions that I looked at. The NASB, which says, so that you may discover the things that are excellent. Uh, the ESV says, so that you may approve what is excellent. The NIV says, so that you may be able to discern what is best. And then the New King James, that you may approve the things that are excellent. The end of those, the end of that verse is nearly the same in all those, but it is helpful. We've talked about this before. It is helpful to look at multiple translations, and uh, when you run into something that doesn't uh, doesn't quite click, and one of the other things that helps is to look at the Greek uh, the Greek word. And so the second slide that Nick has is a basically a breakdown of verse ten. And uh, this is a uh, this is an inter- interlinear presentation of this verse. So you see the Strong's Strong's numbers are on the on the left. Um, next column over are the Greek are the Greek words, and then the English translation, and then uh, the usage of those uh, those words in these verses. And this can be we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but this can be a useful tool for you when you're looking at things. And particularly you run into something, you say, I want to see what, what did the Greek text originally say about that? And what we're going to focus on is Strong's 1381, which is highlighted, uh, which the word is dok amazin. Uh, the root word for that is dok amazo, which means I put to the test, prove, or examine and the definition is to test by implication to approve. And then the general usage in Greek is I put to the test, prove, examine, I dist- distinguish by testing, approve after testing, I am fit. So the reason I, uh, for this uh, bit of a rabbit trail here this morning, 
besides showing some of the tools that are, that are available to you as you study the Word, is it didn't ring quite right when I read that and you know, I looked at the... Um, could you go back to the previous slide, Nick? Thank you. That you may approve what is excellent. That, that didn't, didn't seem to ring quite right. I think it's because of the modern context of the word approve. Sometimes we think of approve as almost being like a rubber stamp. Like somebody says, oh, I approve of that. Like it's a very light thing. But in the, in the King James English and earlier context, approve has a lot more to it than, uh, than what we might think in the modern culture. I think a, a work example, things that uh, Owen and I and others, others have to deal with at work is if you approve something, you're required to look at it carefully, to examine it, to offer, uh, offer input, maybe corrections to whoever wrote that, and before you approve it. It isn't just a stamp, you're good to go. Don't change a thing. I mean, no, that's, that's not the way, that's not what the intent of improve means in this verse. But moving, moving away from the rabbit trail and looking at the Greek word, now we can see there's depth here. But the point is that the real knowledge and discernment that was gained in verse 9 result in discovering spiritual excellence. And Paul reminds us that the objective in this is to prepare ourselves so we're ready for the second coming of Christ. When we, when we stand before Christ, that they're ready. So let's move to our last verse in today's message, which is verse 11. Philippians 1, verse 11. And in this verse, the point is righteousness only comes from Christ. Verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. So the key here is that righteousness comes from Christ, not from ourselves. And the fruit of righteousness, righteousness implies some growth that takes place and there's fruit, there's fruit that's harvested like Jesus' uh, uh, visual parable about the fig tree that didn't have any fruit when he went to that fig tree and uh, looked for fruit there, there was no fruit there. He cursed it, and uh, the tree the tree died. Uh, but uh, the idea is that we should be producing the fruit of righteousness in our lives, but the only place we can get that is from Jesus Christ. We can't grow that in ourselves. Uh, and since Christ is the source, all the glory has to go back to God, doesn't it? And that's what this verse says. It says The end of it says, For the glory and praise of God. Alternatively, man-centered righteousness is worthless, and uh, it's, it's inwardly focused. And an example of that might be you go out and you do something good, and you say, look at what I did. Wasn't that a good thing that I did? I helped, I helped those people out. That's, uh, you know, Scripture says you have your reward in full when you have that sort of mindset, looking for the attention and approval of others. But an example of self-made righteousness which results in turning away from the God is shown in the book of Hosea. Uh, you don't need to turn here, I'll read it for you. It's in Hosea chapter 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the memorial stones. And this sounds kind of good when you first look at it, but if you read on Hosea, you see it's a very bad thing because what they've done is this 
man-made or self-made righteousness has actually led them away from God. And they're now, uh, they're now looking at idols and building more idols. So as we close uh, today's study, let's consider this parallel teaching in 1 John chapter 2. And if you'd turn there with me, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Don't worry, Matthew, I'm almost done. (laughs) You too, Kyler. Don't worry, it's not going to be a long message. Probably another 45 minutes, I'll have it wrapped up. (laughs) No, 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. Now, little children, remain in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not draw back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone who practiced righteousness also has been born of him. So I'll read that one more time. (laughs) That's what I get for making fun. (laughs) Now little children, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not draw back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness also has been born of him. So isn't there a remarkable parallel between that and what we're, what we're seeing in Philippians? But then again, it's not remarkable because as we stop for today and we consider that Scripture is always consistent, it's always right. Uh, if there's an area where it doesn't look right, it's because we don't understand and we need to pray and study harder. But Scripture is always consistent because of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit wrote all these books. They're in the Bible. He used men like like we would use a pen to write something out the holy spirit used men to uh to write these thoughts down uh these and to share these things so as we think back to our recent studies in first john it's not surprising that there is consistency between there and what we're seeing in philippians even though it's two different men uh in theory who wrote the uh, wrote these books but in addition to god-centered righteousness which both john and paul talked about they also cause us to think about love. And the question I thought of is, do I as an individual demonstrate God's agape type of love? And then thinking about it at a higher level, corporate level, if you will, although I believe the Carlsbad Bible Church does overflow with love, perhaps this is a consideration for us as a church also. Do we overflow in love? And then... If we are, we need to think about the church at Ephesus because we find the church at Ephesus was initially commended for their expression of love. We find this in Ephesians 1.15. But something changed over time. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 2. We'll pick up at verse 1 in Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, 
the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. So we see the positive side of things as Jesus, Jesus talks about this church in Ephesus, but he also describes it having, having left their first love. And we don't know exactly what that is, although the, uh, we could uh, certainly deduce the first love for us should be what? But God. I mean, we need to be God and Jesus Christ. We need to be first in our lives. That needs to be our first love. So as we, as we think about that, this church that started out uh, so well and then, and then fell short here at the end, but um, we need to think about that, but not think about, yeah, the church, but we need to think about ourselves because the church is a group of individuals, right? We gather together here in God's house and we worship God, but individually we all have responsibilities. And so as individuals in a church, what should we do? to continue to overflow with agape-type love. Let's close. Lord, we thank you for this day and for this time in your word, Lord. And uh, <clears throat> just for this message from Paul, and again, we're, uh, we're humbled by Paul's uh, heart, Lord, being unfairly treated, imprisoned, and yet so full of love, so full of love for others and concerned about others and just wanting to share and teach your word, Lord. And we thank you for that example you've given us, Lord. And may we consider these things that uh, Paul, Paul shared in this passage and that uh, John has shared before, these aspects of uh, love, true love, godly love, and of righteousness, Lord, the need for that in our lives and how we go about doing that, Lord, which is not of our own power, but uh, from you, Lord. And so we just look to you for all the strength that we need, Lord, for the wisdom that we need in order to uh, just continue to grow in you, Lord. And uh, Lord, we just pray that if there's anything that was said in error this morning by me, that it would just, you would strike it out of everyone's minds. And Lord, we would just be left with the essence of what you wanted taught. And uh, Lord, thank you again for this opportunity to come together and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.